Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on us sinners. Amen. If you don't know how to say your prayers, say that 10,000 times a day, your life will turn around. Um, we're going to give money to somebody. People's Resource Center. There's hungry people in America. Uh, there's hungry people in Wheaton, Illinois. If you can toss a buck in or something, we'll give it to hungry people. You couldn't do better than that. Thanks for coming up. Um, you can tell we're still trying to get the kinks out. Our goal at the first service really is to... 60 minutes is our goal. We were at 66, so that doesn't please us, although... Uh, a lot of things, um, well, we still have to keep going. But you were very good. Thank you very much for uh, the offering. Go seamlessly. Thanks for sending the books across. And also, um, communion is, you know, I think i got to talk to the ushers, but from what I can tell, even though I'm moving, everybody feels comfortable. And Are you okay with it? Is everybody doing okay? Seems like it's going okay. We just have to work through it. Very long lessons. But we want to be right at 60 minutes because we want to respect your time to play along together. Okay? You should have uh, handouts across the back. Again, things will change. There will be coffee service. For now, you have to bring your coffee up. But in another couple of weeks, we'll have coffee service up here. Life is good. Um, and we'll get everything else adjusted. I apologize a little bit for the lighting. I know it's difficult. Uh, you have a very dark floor in here. And this was meant kind of as a funeral chapel, not as a Bible study room. We're going to have to work on... Uh, as much light as we can get. Those are 150-watt bulbs in each of those, but they're recessed. That hurts us a little bit. And, um, you know, we'll work on it. we got to figure this out. So tr you bring your readers and try to bear with us, okay? <laughs> Everybody got a handout? So, um, you know, this has been, in some ways, kind of a life-changing ride for all of us. I think uh, we probably started talking about the place in the sanctuary, you know, at least a decade ago. Hey, there's spots up here. Don't be shy. Um, there are probably 150 seats in here. We're going to have to work. Callahers, you're brave people, plus Jesus loves you. So you can sit up here in the front if you want. Uh, there's two right here for your table for two right here. Uh, you Come on. Uh, Katie, it's all right. There's some up here. Sit with these. Uh, the shites are very nice people. They'll probably recruit you for something. Yeah, they're okay. Yeah, exactly. Sitting in the front. It's okay. Don't worry. Life's good. So in some ways, you know, sometimes when you think back, it's hard to remember even, you know, what we were doing or why in the world we did this or especially what we were doing and how it looked like this. And we're going to spend at least a few weeks, probably a few months, talking about the different pieces so that you can understand them and especially so people who come who are visitors. We probably had, I would think, conservatively 30 visitors at the first service, maybe 40 let me just say to you, if you're not tuned in to visitors, if you could just turn to people you don't know and say, how are you doing? You're going to discover some of them are people who have changed services that have been here forever. <laughs> that, that's actually true. But there were probably 30 or 40 people this morning who I've never seen before. And I can't get to them, but you can get to them. And so talk to them, be kind, invite them back. And then partly they're going to say to you, why in the world do you do that? Why in the world? So I'm going to give you your answer right now. Because even people have said to me, why in the world do you do that? And the answer is, Lutherans have always done this. I mean, that's the answer. And what I'm going to do over the next few weeks is show you that. Lutherans have always said, um, there was Jesus. There was the apostles. There was the early church. There was the, there was the Middle Ages. There was the church of the Renaissance Reformation. And what Lutherans have always said is, you know, other churches might have taken a zig or a zag, but the Lutherans are straight-lined back to the early church. 
The trouble with Lutherans sometimes is, is they, they kind of zigged or zagged too, maybe where they shouldn't have. Uh, and it even happens so much that for some of you, when you sort of look around, you're like, wow, we never did that before. For example, kneeling at the Eucharistic prayer. But people have always done that. Or ringing the bell. Read the Lutheran confessions. They say, you can ring the bell if you want. You don't have to ring the bell. What does that mean? That means that they were ringing the bell. That means people were actually doing it. Or they say, you can wear a chasuble or not wear a chasuble. Guess what? That means they were wearing them. And in places like Scandinavia, they never stopped ringing the bell, and they never stopped wearing the chasuble. It's what Lutherans have always done. We became a bit Americanized, but here's the thing. And, and that's okay. So you have to hear everything that we're going to say and even everything that we built in, not as being critical of other places, but as being legitimate, as being the Lutheran thing. It's interesting. We have new people who come now who, when we do the liturgy, right out of the book, they say, you know, why do you do that? And the answer is, because that's the book. <laughs> I mean, people think we're innovative because we use the hymnal. Um, so we just have to, we're, I mean, I'm serious. And that sort of tells you where Lutheranism is. And here's the thing I'm not going to do. I'm not, I'm not, I am, have no interest in fighting with other churches, talking about other people. All I'm ever trying to do for you is to give you the best possible reminder, as the sermon was brilliant this morning, the best pot, which is another reason why Gaining should not go to Atlanta. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's just difficult because they've offered him $9 million to build a new church. So, you know, when somebody says to you, uh, we don't have any money problems, here's $9 million and a big pay increase, and then they, it's very hard for him. His soul is tortured now. But I assure him it's all from the devil and that... Uh, <laughs> Okay, but that's a whole other story. Um, uh, so anyway, all I want to do, all I want to suggest to you is that what we're doing is um, the things that Lutherans have always done. And so you're going to see a ton of stuff, not just from Scripture, but from the Lutheran confessions, from the catechism, from the large catechism, just to kind of say to you, when people, people say Lutherans don't do that, my response often is, uh, Luther did that. Luther wore chasuble. Luther went to private confession. Luther used incense. Luther rang the bell. And so when people say Lutherans don't do that, the odd thing is, is it's like, hmm, uh, maybe not. So um, I'm just kind of giving you the big overview of where we're going. Now, partly your answer then, when people say, why did you do that? Part of your answer is, that's what Lutherans have always done. Lutherans have done it for 500 years. And if you go to Germany, um, you'll see Lutherans are still doing it. You'll walk in and you'll see such things. So um, I give you this. Uh, have you got the handout in front of you? So welcome to the new sanctuary. Now, why did we do what we did, right? You know, why did we build it this way? And what does it mean? And how does it teach? And, and you'll notice that the new um, the notes before the service are, are, are put into three categories. Adoring, which is Christ gives you a gift and you simply say, thank you so much for that. Thank you so much for that. I love that. Uh, maturing, which is we're all trying to move from milk to meat, and embodying, how can I be Christ in the world? How can you be Christ in the world? So the space says to you, when do you adore? You genuflect and adore the sacrament. When do you mature? When you come every week of your own accord and let Jesus touch you. How do you embody? When we have 30 or 40 visitors this morning and you're not too shy to say, I'm really glad you're here. I love you. 
Can I help you in any way? You want to meet the elders? You want to meet my pastor? How can I help you? Um, that brings Christ to other people. And that's what we're trying to get you all comfortable with, okay? Makes sense. Um, so, uh, welcome to the New Sanctuary. And, and then I give you this from uh, Jean Danelou, who's a, a brilliant uh, scholar, history of the church. The Christian faith has only one object, the mystery of Christ, dead and risen. I mean, that's, and that's the very first thing we always say in every new members class. There's just a single story in the scriptures. It is the story of death and resurrection. That's all that's trying to happen. You were dead, now you're alive. And then as Paul regularly says, let's do some good, Galatians 6.10. Come on, let's do some good, Romans 12.1. Make your body a living sacrifice. Come on, let's do some good. Let's embody it in the world. That's who we are. That's what we love. And the point is, um, for, to help all of you do that, so the Christian faith has just one object, the mystery of Christ, dead and risen. But this single mystery subsists under different modes. It's prefigured in the Old Testament. It's accomplished historically in the earth of life of Christ. It's contained in the mystery of the sacraments. It is lived mystically in souls. And it is accomplished socially in the church. And it's consummated eschatologically. That's a big word for the last day. It's consummated at the second coming of Jesus in the heavenly kingdom. And we're about to go to all those texts. The gospel for today is the first one that starts to run us toward there's going to be an end of the kingdom, there's going to be a judgment, how is Jesus going to judge? And the very first thing you heard today was he's going to judge really graciously. People who just get under the wire are honored the same way that people have been there from forever. And people who have been there forever shouldn't resent it. You should be so happy that people just got in under the wire because everybody's in and nobody's out. That's what the church is trying to do. Okay? So when you walk in and people say, you know, why is the font like that? You say, because that's what Lutherans have always done. In fact, that's what the church has always done. For 2,000 years, that's what the church has always done. So, point two, start at the start with holy baptism. But as we go, this is what I want you to ask yourself. How would we, the baptized, best, model, express, extol, teach, elevate, emulate, acclaim, rejoice, rest, and live eternally in his work? You know, Keith was on the REC, Gordon was on the REC, Martha and Dave were on the REC, the pastors were on the REC from the very first. And I give you, you know, sometimes we forget where we were, which is why I gave you this. This is a very first incarnation. You know, that's from three years ago. That's what we were aiming at. You know, we got most of it. We got about 70% of it. But when we sat down and said, what are we going to do? And there's a little explanation on the back. And some things we got and some things we didn't get. But the whole point, every time we sat down, was to say, what praises Christ? What makes Christians? What um, embraces our faith? You haven't maybe noticed or not, but next week, if I preach and it gets boring, run your eyes right up the column at the top of the column are some medallions. There's five on each side. They match. Those are from five great cathedrals in the, in the church. It's a reminder of what Lutherans have always said, which is we belong to the church Catholic, small c. We belong to the church of the apostles, the early church, the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, the Reformation. We belong to the church. This is our church. And as Lutherans, we're proud of that. But we need to be proud of the things that are Jesus things. Not things that are so, I mean, you've got to hear this in the right way. I'm not banging the drum just for Lutheranism as the only ones in heaven. I've never said that. What I'm banging the drum for is where Lutherans have held on to the pure things of Jesus. And among the purest things are um, the sacraments, what Jesus uh, does himself. So we start then with baptism. All right? Flip to the next page.
<clears throat> this is one of the most basic things. I've said this to you year after year, time after time, but it's so important. When you're here, Jesus is at work. When you're here, God does the verbs. God forgives you. God saves you. God loves you. God washes you. God feeds you. God brings you home. God blesses you. God prays for you. It's not about our work. And Lutherans have always been extraordinarily strong on that. That it is Jesus Christ himself who does the verb. Yes, he does it through me. Yes, he does it through you. Each according to our own vocations. But it's really important always to remember that Jesus is doing the work. And so you say to yourself, you know, what kind of work is he doing? Um, Point four. The first thing he's doing is saving people. The Reformation was fought over how people got saved. What's startling often for Lutherans, and for especially Lutherans in America, is they've kind of diminished word and sacrament over the years. But I give you a quote from the Large Catechism, which may be shocking to you. Baptism is divine water. So when you see people you know, dip their fingers and make the sign of the cross, why are they doing that? Because baptism is divine water. Immediately, you know, I'll get a little bit of holy water reaction from some people. I'll get a little bit of evangelical reaction from other people. But there it is in the thing that I confess when I was ordained and that you confess when you say we believe in the Lutheran confessions. Baptism is divine water. Something divine happens in the water. Now, pause. When we were designing, one of the first things, and we ran this margin comment in the first night, the building always wins. You know, the building always wins. We had, um, and this is, you know, someday you'll probably get all this when we get, our books are just finishing the audit. Everything's fine, but the auditor's finishing up. The budget was $1.75 million. John, we're going to be within $10,000 of that, plus or minus-ish. We're, uh, we're stunningly on budget. Um, but here's the other thing. You'll say, you know, how could that all be done? I mean, full disclosure, uh, over the, beyond the 1.5 million, or 1.75 million, um, two things happened. One is we had three or four new members classes, and two is we had people who came and said, I tithe, I have completed my capital campaign, and I want to give more. I know that's shocking for you, but that actually happened. So about another $400,000 came in addition to that for designated things, which means we actually hit the number. We had $3.5 million pledged. The congregation gave $3.5 million. That never happens. Even when you have a consultant come in, they say to you, expect 85% or a little bit more. We gave 100% of our total. That's stunning. So in this recession, with all the things we went through, this congregation promised $3.5 million, and it gave $3.5 million. It wasn't the same people. It was a lot of new people. But people gave it. And the, the thing is, you know, exactly on budget. I mean, we're going to be, we could be plus or minus $10,000 or $15,000 depending on if something breaks or if something doesn't come in or if something doesn't fit. But that's a very small margin of error on a $3.5 million budget. That's very small, okay? So congratulations. Thank you very much. I mean, you did a great job with that, which isn't a big number. Um, twice this week, the Church of the Resurrection, um, I met with their pastor, and then they toured their staff through because they were stunned at what we were able to do. They've just bought the big factory behind F.E. Wheaton, and they're going to turn that big factory into their new sanctuary. And 
Um, I have to admit it made me a little nervous as I walked through their factory with them because I know what they're going to do the next 10 years. And uh, it's not pretty. Which is another reason Gaining should go to Atlanta because he'll be so stressed out if he has to build them a new church. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm just trying to look out for the poor man. So, anyway, um, the good news is, is, you know, we did a lot of good work. But we didn't have a ton of money, so we did some big things. Now, if baptism is divine water, if baptism is the difference between life and death, if baptism is Jesus' work, if baptism is what you'll say when you get to heaven, uh, why should you be here? You'll say, well, I'm baptized. I have a reserved seat. If that's what you're going to say, then... You have a huge font. Why do you have a huge font? Because baptism is a huge thing. So what you notice is anything that's a huge thing has a huge place. So the altar is huge. The cross is huge. The font is huge. Why? Because those are the central huge things in the Christian life. I'm baptized. I get the Eucharist because Jesus died for me. And what he did on the cross, he gives to me at the altar and he gives to me at the font. So when you come in, those are markers. The building always wins. You can't have a dinky little font in a big sanctuary unless you think baptism is a dinky little thing. I give you the Lutheran confessions. Baptism is divine water. What does that mean? It means that Jesus swims in the water and he fishes with a barbed hook. And he pulls you out, and he never lets you go. So when people come and say, you know, my kid's not going to church anymore, or I'm very concerned because um, my wife has taken a wrong turn, or my husband just is, you know, our first answer almost always is, they're baptized, right? Yeah, then there's hope. So we get asked for a funeral for somebody who hasn't been to church in 25 years. We do the funeral. We don't lie. But what we do say is, once upon a time, this person was baptized. And that's the biggest factor in people's life. So if it's the biggest factor in people's life, then you need a great big font. Because when people come in, you can't get into the church without seeing that font, without touching that font, without moving around that font. We're trying to say to you, this is the biggest factor in your life. We force you, in a way, to engage that font. You have to remember that you're baptized. You have to remember the person next to you is baptized. You have to remember that's a matter of life and death. You just can't get around it. And the coolest thing is, is when little kids come up, and it was designed exactly this way, and they just start to touch it. And they don't say anything. They just stand. So 4 o'clock on Wednesday, just so you know, <laughs> if you have kids, you should turn them loose here with the pastors. This week, we light stuff on fire. We'll swim another week. We can't swim the first week. Um, although, I will say, when Jim Butcher was putting the font in, another great guy who did a ton of work for us, when he was sitting in the font, there's one picture of him where it just his head comes above. He could get the rest of his family in if he wanted to. Because it's a big deal. Why is it a big deal? Because baptism is divine water. Okay? So baptism is the Lord's work. Now, what I didn't do for you is write out um, all kinds of, I didn't do the most basic stuff. 
I'm presuming about you that you know quite a bit. If you don't know quite a bit, then you can catch up on this on the Saturday catechumenate. But you all have been to Bible study for a decade. So what I'm doing is I'm taking what I know that you know. Jesus said, in your going, make disciples by baptizing and teaching. You know that. You make a disciple by baptizing and teaching. You make a disciple by font and pulpit lectern altar. That's how you make a disciple. You baptize one time, baptizing, one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, as the creed says, and then by repeatedly teaching. So we read all three lessons, Old Testament, New Testament, and Gospel, because that belongs to you, even though the readings were incredibly long this week, Vicar. And then, um, you know, the preaching, you know, and the, you know, the preaching was bang on, 964 words. Um, you know, there it was, uh, exactly what we looked for, 10 minutes, that's the limit. And the altar is there saying to you, you know, adore this, love this, eat here. Jesus is present. Okay? So, make disciples, baptizing and teaching. Baptism is of divine origin, not something devised or invented by men. <coughs> it is no human plaything, but is instituted by God himself Excellent, glorious, and exalter. Now we play my favorite game, which is you be me. If you're going to have a font, and the Lutheran confessions say, this is the first divine work in your life, and it is excellent, glorious, and exalted, now you have this tremendous pressure to say, holy cow, what kind of a font says to anybody who walks in the door, baptism is divine water, excellent, glorious, and exalted. You still with me? This making sense? This is the assignment. The assignment was build a church that teaches. Build a church that says Jesus is home. Build a church that says Jesus is at work. You know, what are you going to do? To be baptized in God's name is to be baptized not by men, but by God himself. Okay? And then, you know, this has fallen off a log for you. It's saving work. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. You know this. It's solemnly and strictly commanded that we must be baptized or we shall not be saved, large catechism. That means everybody who comes through the door, you're asking them, are you baptized? And if they're not, you're saying to them, how soon can we get you in that water? Because that's the bottom line. The bottom line is get people baptized. That's their, that's their first step. Here we go. No one is baptized in order to become a prince, but to be saved, to be delivered from sin, death, and the devil, and to enter into the kingdom of Christ and live, sorry, typo, and live with him forever. So the goal is to tell you um, how to do that. Next page. So as a matter of missions, that is, <coughs> those 30 or 40 people who came in today, what we want them to say is, wow, why is that big tub of water there? Or we want them to say, oh, that makes sense, I'm in the right place. Because already we're telling people about ourselves. This is like when you go for a first date. You know, when she comes to the door and opens it, you know, immediately there's a first impression, right? I mean, as a father, when the boys come to the door, I either think to myself, this is going to be fine, or I need to take him and show him where I keep my sharp knives. <laughs> you know, everybody has a first impression. So the first impression we want is that. That's the first impression we want. If you stand right here and you look straight ahead, 
you see everything that you need for salvation. Your baptism, Jesus Christ who is the light of the world, the road to Emmaus that goes directly to Jesus, who teaches them, uh, he opened to them, he explained to them the, pro the law and the prophets, and their eyes were opened, and they saw him break the bread, and he disappeared. The Easter story has the entire sanctuary. The whole sanctuary is built on the Easter story. The baptized see Christ as the light of the world. They journey to the Holy Eucharist. They see him, and they're sent out the door. That's the first impression we want to make. You stand in the door, and you look forward. You see the whole history and story of Jesus Christ. There it is. When you're standing right here, you see everything that you need to know about being saved and everything you need to know about being light to the world, embodying the faith. Make sense? So if you bump into one of these new people and they say, what in the world is that all about? You should think to yourself, <laughs> and then you should give them the goods, right? <laughs> so um, how would we deliver, model, express, extol, teach, elevate, emulate, acclaim, rejoice, and rest in the saving work? Or ask it this way. And this, I, frankly, <coughs> is something that's being restored in this generation. I mean, everybody thought it was cool in the 60s when the Catholics finally got to wear cutoffs to mass. That was taken as a great Vatican to advance, but was it not? You Catholic types, huh? The thing is, is um, yeah, it's okay. I mean, Jesus loves you in your cutoffs. It's fine. But if you went home tonight and Jesus was coming to dinner, is that what you'd wear? I mean, if you were bumping into the president or pick somebody else, it's the queen's birthday soon, a couple of weeks. If the queen was coming to dinner, how would you dress? How would you act? It's not that you don't like the queen. She's a perfectly nice woman. But um, occasionally, like when she's going to make you a knight of the empire, you might want to dress up. At Cambridge, when they bring you forward for your degree, um, her husband is the chancellor at Cambridge. So they bring you forward, and they present you to Prince Philip uh, when there's too many, they put their hand out like this, and you each take a finger, and then they draw you forward. That's how you, but you wouldn't go unless he gave you a finger. It's a very strange thing to watch. Oh, sorry. Well, sometimes you say things you don't intend to say. Wow. Back to Jesus. As an aside... Should somebody ask about faith, completely from the confessions, faith has to have something to believe in. Faith needs an object. If you're married, you believe in the fact that your spouse loves you, right? If you come to church, you believe in the fact that your pastor's been ordained, and so he can say to you, I forgive you in the name of Jesus. I forgive you in the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Nobody else can say that. A normal person can't say that. Faith needs something to believe. If somebody says to you, why am I saved, you say, because I've been in the font. Why are you saved? Because I've been in the water, right? I'm saved because of that. You don't have to make some big excuse about how you were in Jesus' camp and the lights went dim and there was lightning and then you decide. Faith, I'm sorry, baptism is divine water. Why are you saved? Jesus baptized me. Really? Where did you do that? Right there. And so what we want is kids to touch it, play in it, make the sign of the cross in it, I've already seen people, now this is just, this is just going to be etiquette, I've already had people chase kids away from the font. Don't chase anybody away from the font. 
what I'd rather have them do is hug the font, get really wet, and let their parents figure it out. <laughs> okay? The font is there uh, for them to play in. By the way, um, uh, you can check this with Kovac afterwards, but people were worried about pulling themselves in. And of course, I'm a bit of a worrier about that, and the worst thing would be, although we called the guy who made the font, he kind of starts laughing. He said, well, he said, that font is just four, on, four inches off code for the railing around the top of a 10-story building. So it's 32 inches high. 36 is apparently the is code for a railing. Um, you know, there's a little bit of a disincentive. If your kid is like Schwarzenegger and can actually grab on the top and pull themselves in, all I can say to you is you should stop giving them human growth hormone and watch them more closely, okay? <laughs> but in general, you know, what you want kids to do, what we want kids to do, not in a goofy way, not like splashing them all over, not like it's a swimming pool, but it's very touching when you see a kid come up and just put their hand on the font very respectfully. It's very interesting when you see two kids talking about the water over the top. It's, I'll tell you, it's exactly what it was designed to do. If we didn't want kids to touch it, we wouldn't have made the water run over the top. We made the water to run over on purpose. So it would be compelling. So people would come close to it. So when people say, why is the water running over the top? You could say, well, that's the Didache circa ADAD, the very first instructions that they had for baptism in the New Testament. It's 7.3. Let me quote that to you. Don't worry, it's in here. Coming up, okay? <laughs> because that's how they did it in the year 80. You know, because we're doing the same thing they did in the year 80. We'll get to that, okay? So faith needs something to believe, something to which it may cling, something upon which it may stand. Faith clings to the water. See, you always think, Faith clings to Jesus, which is right, but Jesus is in the water. It's divine water. He's swimming around right now, going for his best time in the backstroke. That's what's happening right now as you're up here. Faith clings to the water. Why am I saved? I've been watered. You shouldn't be able to take a drink. You shouldn't be able to hit a golf ball into a pond. You know, you shouldn't be able to sprinkle your yard without thinking to yourself, I'm baptized. When people walk in the door, we want them to say, I'm baptized. When your kid who only ever comes at Christmas comes back to church, you want them to say, that happened to me. And then someday they'll come back. You wait and see. But for now, you have to hit them between the eyes with a sledgehammer, which is to say you need a font that looks like something actually happened. If you're saved, it's because Jesus took the time to baptize you. And that sticks. It sticks. And it'll come back, no matter how disappointing you know, spouses or parents or kids may be. It sticks. And every time they come in, it's this giant reminder, not to shame them, but to remind them that Jesus loved them so much that what he won on the cross, he gives you in the font. That's why you can see it all at one time. This right here gets delivered right here and right here. That's where you get it. You can't go back to Jerusalem about 33 A.D. You cannot go. But you can come to baptism. And you can come to the Eucharist. That's how Jesus designed it. You're tactile human beings. You smell, you touch, you feel, you think. Faith needs something to believe. Believe in the font. Believe in divine water. Why? Not because water, as you know this from the small catechism, is special in itself. Water comprehended with the divine word. Jesus is going for a swim in the water. That's where you find him, okay? So faith clings to the water with God's word and ordinance joining his name to it. Look at this. God is the one who has implanted his word. He takes his word and he plants it in the font. 
<coughs> in this external ordinance and offers it to us so that we grasp the treasure it contains. So what we want you to say is, that happened to me. God did it to me. Why am I saved? Because God baptized me. Where did he do it? At a font, something like that. But every time I see that, and I know, you know, it was really interesting. One of the most touching things about moving was people who said, you know, I grieve the fact that I was baptized at that font. Or I was married at that altar. You know, my kids were confirmed in that space. That's a real grief. You know, that's a, that's a hard thing. That was my space. Now this is my space. It's going to take me a while. That's right. I mean, it's an argument for building a cathedral that stands for 500 years. You know, we don't do that much anymore, but it's, it's a great reason for building a church. The first cathedral I was ever in in Europe, in Bruges in Belgium, took 300-plus years to build, which means the, the guy who laid the cornerstone, his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson put the tile on the top. That's an amazing thing to think about. You know, it's um, 1600, and you know that your grandfather laid the cornerstone in, th- in 1300. I mean, that's some commitment. It also means that the place is home. That's why when you build a church, you do the best thing you possibly can, because you hope to be home for a very long time. You know, you hope that it'll be home. You know, and it is hard to move over. But any church you go into, any font you see, you should say to yourself, that's me, I was baptized. Jesus swims in all those fonts, um, and he loves me just the same. (coughs) How you doing? You still okay? Questions about anything? I know I'm going fast. Here's the thing. I get started a little late. I got to stop a little early. I'm still adjusting the time, and you might not have noticed, but I can just keep talking. Mr. Crawford. Right. Right. You remember in the pool of Bethesda, when did people hop in the water at Bethesda to get healed? When it moved. When the water moves, you know that something is going on there, right? We do have a bubble. We're going to work the bubbles out just a little bit. It's going to be a little less. Right now, people, it is. It's, we're going to, right, it just comes up. We're going to take some of the bubbles out because they're kind of loud, and we're actually afraid somebody's going to cast in and start going. So... Um, <laughs> We're going to calm that down. There's one more piece to come, uh, but you should, you should know that, that that's, that's there. Yes, please. Don, please. That was Vicar Holmes' son, as long as we're placing blame. Sure, there's a practical way to keep that candle dry, Don. So here, I'll just say, David Mooma said to me, and I love David Moon because he, he said, you know, this probably needs to be bolted to the floor or something. I said, come on, it is, it weighs 50 pounds, it's six feet tall, and Jim Butcher poured 60 pounds of lead in the bottom. That will never tip over. Okay, well, no, so then he's standing there, and I was in there too, and all of a sudden I'm standing like this out of the corner of my eye. I see the candle starting to tip in. <laughs> And at the same time, Moomin and I reached out and grabbed it, and then he looks over the candle and he goes, I told you so. <laughs> and I'm like, I mean, I called home. I'm like, what, your, do you know Harry, their second, I mean, Nigel, he, I mean, he goes by Harry, uh, but for another reason. But, you know, here's the thing. Uh, you know, he's like, I still don't know. I talked to him the other day. He's like, I still don't know what happened. I'm like, I don't know what happened either. How can a kid 
knock over a candle that weighs 80 pounds. I mean, it takes two guys to lift it. So here's the thing. We haven't bolted it down yet. We're waiting for, you know, we're still waiting prayerfully. I mean, can it, I'll still say the same thing, even though Muma's probably here somewhere. It'll never happen. Don't worry about it, Don, okay? But as you know, um, it was interesting because we had our first service on the very first day. The very next morning, 12 hours later, 14 hours later, we had a funeral. Um, And of course, (coughs) properly, your spot is right here next to the candle. The, the, The casket goes by the font. And you say, now why do you do that? Well, because um, that's the only guarantee you're getting into heaven. I'm going to say the same thing when we get to the Lord's Supper. But for now, it's the only guarantee you get. So you put to comf- the maximum comfort for the family is to put the casket right by the font, right by Jesus who is the light of the world. And just as a, an aside, kind of as you know, ultimate confession, to say that you know death is just an interruption. When you die, everybody takes their normal position. So, um, Callagher, if you die, your head goes right here, and then your feet go forward. In case, right, if Jesus comes back right during your service, you'd stand up and you'd be right in place. That's true. Now, let's say Gaining decides to take the call and we have to kill him. <laughs> <coughs> That's exactly right. He gets turned around, so Gaining's head would be right here, and his feet goes here. Because this is actually true, because if Jesus would come back and resurrect him, say, what a mistake that was, then he would stand right up, and he'd be ready to absolve you. That's actually true. So when you go, when you, when, this is actually true now, and, and I'll just encourage you, um, if you don't want to have your wake at the funeral home, this is all planned so you can have your wake here. So your family can be here gathered near so that your body is in the place where your body got saved and your friends can circulate round about. It is the most comforting place. Far more comforting for you to be at the font where you got saved than at a funeral home. Nothing against funeral homes. This is just, this is your home. Make sense? So, and everybody, just just a little aside because, um, you know, you, you, everybody takes your normal position. Your feet would be forward because if you'd stand up, you'd be looking at the altar a pastor goes the other way around because if he would stand up, he'd be there to give you absolution and preach a good gospel word to you. It's the conf- Even in how you put a body in a funeral, you're saying, we're saved. Death is just an interruption. I already had my big death when I was baptized. I'm fine. Life is good. Here we go. Make sense? It's all these little things. Lutherans have been doing this forever. It's just like, um, it's just like why you used to build a church you know, you'd have the graveyard out beyond the altar. Because when you kneel down, you're looking through the altar at the graveyard, and if they happen to raise up, they'd be looking right back at you. So when you say the prayer with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, you're including the people in the graveyard behind the church. You got it? There's all these things that the church has done forever. In the last hundred years, and especially in America, all this has been lost, and it impoverishes us. Because there's something comfort. I think of my dead father and my dead brother every time at the altar. It's great stuff. So, um, it's good for you. Okay, so, um, as an aside, you know, think about this. Baptism as death and resurrection. First thing is the font is a tomb. I should have put down here, next week I'm going to talk to you about the font as a womb. But the font first is a tomb. Romans 6.3, don't you know when you're baptized, 
you're buried with Christ. So the font is where you go to die. In fact, it has to be big enough to drown in. That's what you're aiming at. Um, you know, we don't immerse here. Luther immersed. Uh, you know, unfortunately in America, we only think of Baptists and evangelical types as immersing. They stole that from us. Um, we could have put a thing in the floor to immerse people. It was one of the early designs we had. It was another $50,000, so we didn't do it. Uh, where the grates would actually be in the sign of the cross, you'd pull them up and if somebody wanted to go all the way in. Although, having seen Jim Butcher in the font, I know that it's possible. Um, I'm nervous about immersing kids. I've never done it. People tell me the kids have a natural reflex or their clothes off. Yeah, I want to dunk your kid. Uh, not mine. But, you know, you should be able to dunk a baby and they're supposed to be okay. Um, sometimes you pinch their nose and you put them under. I tell you, that would be a difficult first experience for me because we never learned. Uh, if, you know, if we'd have been, you know, held this and been taught properly, then you'd be like other things, falling off a log, right? But the whole notion is that you drown the old Adam. That's catechism talk, that you die. How do you die? You die with Christ in the water. Christ is in the water. Christ died. It's Romans 6, 3. All of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death. Passive verb. He baptizes us into his death. We're buried with him by baptism into death. Okay? Then I give you a little piece there. You can read that later. But basically, it's a story of this church in Central America where they actually bring the children forward in a coffin. I don't know if you've ever been to the, it's a difficult thing to baptize a very little, or to bury a very small child. Um, you have this tiny coffin, and often parents will carry the coffin in, which is just about more than you can take. You know, you, like, you see, I've been places where the dad has like carried the coffin in, you know, rather than put it on the rollers. I mean, it's just about more than you can stand. But I will say to you, I, I, this church in Central America this guy shows up, they have a baptism. Here comes the parents, and they're carrying their kid to the font in a coffin. It's the craziest thing. What in the world? Well, they take literally the notion that you get baptized into Christ's death. They take the kid out of the coffin, they baptize him, now he's free. He died his death. This is why, and this is the last thing i got to say because we got to go, this is why um, you don't need to fear your death. And I'll come back to it next week, but this is why when we anoint you at your baptism and we anoint you with the final prayers just before you die, you use the same smell because smell is the last sense to go. Eyes go, ears go, everything goes. Smell is the last sense to go, but it's also one of the most potent. It's one of the most potent senses you have. It's the last one to go before death. So even if you can't talk, we anoint you and you should be able to smell that's what I got when I was baptized. It's the ultimate assurance. That's the reason we anoint you when you're sick and anoint you when you die. If you'll let us, some people won't let us do it. We don't force it. But more and more people let us anoint. Why? You get anointed at your baptism. You're saved. You can smell it. You get anointed when you're sick. Jesus will see me through the suffering. You can smell it. As you're dying, we anoint you. If you can't hear us talk, if you can't hear us pray, if you can't feel us grab your hand, Smell is the last thing to go. You can smell it. You can smell the fact that you've been saved. You're saved. Well, they bring this kid, and then they take him out of the coffin. They plunge him in the water, and back he comes. So, I mean, the first thing you need to know about baptism is it's God's work. The second thing to know is that you die. 
This is falling off a log for you. You know this, but you've got to have tools that express this truth to people. So you can have a read through that. I want to give you a little more stuff. There's stuff about the living water, about the sixes, about the eights, about the circle. And then I have a little more stuff that we need to talk about baptism as um, regeneration, as new birth. So you don't only die, you live. Now, just a little bit about the morning um, tag. Just so so you know what we're trying to do. If you come, (coughs) we're trying to get the announcements. We're trying to be at the lectern at 827 to give the announcements. If you come and the announcements are going, um, you're not late. We just are really trying to hit the hour because we go out live on the radio at 8.30 and we want to be done at 9.30. So you have half an hour to kind of talk to each other and then get up here for Bible study, okay? And now I'm a couple of minutes over. I actually didn't even know till today that clock is up there. We need to be going in another 11 minutes. So pastors and vicar and lay assistants, we've got to go now. We're going to try to keep the time. You're all free to have some fun. But know that um, the bell, when you hear the bell, that's the five-minute warning. That's like, hey, something is happening. We don't have a big church bell because we don't have a big church steeple. But when you hear the bell, five minutes to the next thing, we'll try to keep on time. And it's going to take us a little while to get our rhythm. We're getting a little bit better, a little bit better every week. We've only done this four weekends, so we're not so good yet. But it's going to get a lot, lot better. Thanks for being patient. Take the stuff with you. We'll talk about stuff. We love you. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thanks. Love you. See you next week.